Praise the Lord. Good morning. If this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you again. Welcome to Point of Grace Church. My name is Norbert. I'm the pastor of the church. Let me begin by saying that one of the most puzzling concepts in the scriptures is why God answers certain prayers and rejects some. So we would like to know what criteria does God use in order to determine which prayer to answer and which prayer to reject. So we ask, is it about my faith? Or is it about the prayer that I asked God for? Or is it about His timing? Why could God just answer all my prayers? Well, there's bad news and there's good news. Let's, let's deal with good news first. In terms of prayer, the good news is that God is in charge, which means He determines when to answer and how to answer our prayers. Another good news is that because God is good, we have the assurance that God wants what's good for us. He's looking after us. And because God is wise, He determines if what we're asking will be good for us or will be bad for us. What we're saying is that the choice to eat the apple is within reach. So Eve, all that Eve has to do is to reach for it, to take it, and eat. It's the same principle in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when Israel demanded the king. They demanded the wrong thing. They asked God for the wrong thing. Now last week we talked about 1 Samuel chapter 8. Israel demanded for a king. It was motivated by this desire to be like all the nations in the world. So when they asked Samuel, they said, Samuel, give us a king. We would like to be a kingdom where we are ruled by a king just like all the nations. We would like to become like all the nations. And it doesn't matter what God wants. It doesn't matter what God approves of. What matters is what they want, and they want a king to rule them just like all the nations in the world. But God gave them a consequence, warned them that there will be consequences if they asked for a king. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and the following. And I'm going to base our sermon from this text. It says, There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Beorath, son of Apiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. Now, it's very interesting and you have to pay attention to the Benjaminite, a man of wealth, because this is important in our text. And then he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. I cannot see anyone right now whose description fits like that of Saul. So he has three descriptions. He is handsome, he's rich, and he's tall. We are in trouble. <laughs> now, the scriptures are very particular in the description of Saul. Number one, he's a Benjaminite. He's rich, tall, and most especially, he's handsome. He's, this, is the guy, this is the guy that you would see in the front page of GQ magazine. This is the guy who would probably replace Thor or Superman. You know, square jaw. Blue eyes, muscular biceps, maybe seven feet tall. And don't forget the rich part. In other words, he's the total package. If you're looking for a person to marry, this is the total package. But let me cut to the chase. 
This is what the Israelites desire. This is what kind of king they want. But is it God what is this what God wants? Their number one criteria is aesthetics. Now, if you are a single lady today, what would be your top three criteria for looking for a husband? It would probably be the same, rich, tall, and handsome. It would have been trouble for me if that was criteria of Kathleen. <laughs> it's a good thing. I did something that you don't know that made, them, made her change her mind. Now, why is this, why is this the case? And I'm, saying, I'm not saying this is wrong. It's just the way it is. We want rich, tall, and handsome because we are big also on aesthetics. We are impressed with colors, shapes, and sizes. These are the basic things that we learn from art. And the scriptures seem to describe an image of a king according to man's heart. This is what we want. Now, what about the ability? Now, he passed all the tall, rich, and handsome, and rich. What about his ability? Verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but they did not find them. Now, in three places, they did not find the donkeys that were lost. If you go through the map, you will see that these places that mentioned covers at least more than an area of 25 miles. So that's roughly equivalent from the Hard Rock Stadium all the way to the north to Deerfield Beach. But going through hills and valleys because the land of Palestine is about hills and valleys. But I would suppose that any seasoned shepherd tracking and finding lost animals would not be impossible. It may be hard, but not impossible. See, looks have nothing to do with the ability to shepherd. Think about this. If a king is responsible for leading and administering the kingdom, then the basic minimum for becoming king is having the ability to shepherd, at least. Understanding what it means to lead the sheep and find the lost. So what this means, from verse 3 and verse 4, the author seems to be telling us that Saul is not fit for the job. He does not have the ability to be king. He was just as lost as the donkeys. Now, what I find interesting here is the donkeys were smart. <laughs> they have done a far better job than Saul trying to find them. Now, speaking of donkeys, the last time the scriptures talk about donkeys was in the book of Numbers. Now, if you remember your history, when Israel was passing through the land of the Midianites, they did not like it. They thought that he, they were trespassing. So the Israelites, about 1.5 billion people, million people, were passing through the land of the Midianites. They were about to cross to the promised land, but the Midianites didn't like it. So they hired a sorcerer to curse them. But in this instance, God intervened and told the sorcerer to stop, not to curse the people of Israel. But, you know, how can this greedy, gun-for-hire sorcerer refuse a handsome fee? So the next day, he decided to do a meet and greet. He rode this donkey, and along the way, the angel of the Lord appeared in front of the donkey. He cannot see the, the sorcerer 
was not able to see the angel of the Lord, but the donkey was able to see the angel of the Lord, and it stopped. So the sorcerer hit his donkey. Now, what's interesting here is if you read the story in the book of Numbers, God gave the ability to the donkey to speak back to the sorcerer. And the donkey said, why did you hit me? <laughs> this is funny, but this is in the scripture. So the, donk- so the, the sorcerer said, because I'm so frustrated. Now, I think he's really frustrated because he, did, he, he didn't even notice that his donkey spoke back. So he spoke back to the donkey, I'm so frustrated. See, the point is, the story of Saul looking for the lost donkey seems to be another story of stubbornness and defiance of like the sorcerer. Now, because God told the sorcerer not to curse Israel, he still rode the donkey and proceeded. In the same way, God told the Israelites not to ask for a king, and yet they still demanded for a king. God had already told the people of Israel that asking a king is like equivalent to rejecting Yahweh, and they still insisted. See, the story of the donkey were simply incidental, but they bring the point. Donkeys were more submissive than men. So, again, back to the story. Saul and his guy went looking for the donkeys until they reached the place called Zuf. When they get there, Saul must be exhausted and frustrated that he decided to call it quits. Let's call it a day. Let's, not, let's stop looking for the donkey. Now, this tells you the level of determination of Saul to find the lost donkeys. See, real shepherds will do anything possible to look for the lost animal. Would you agree? Real shepherds would even sacrifice their own lives for the flock. But Saul, contrary, showed his real self. And this is red flag. He's got the looks, but not the heart. He is tall, rich, and handsome, but he doesn't have the passion and resolve to finish the job. He's not fit to be king. So when they arrived at Suf, his servant told him, you know what, there's a prophet who lives here. There was a seer who lives here. He was talking about Samuel. Samuel lived at Suf. So Samuel was very known in the land. He's the official spokesperson of God. He's both prophet, judge, and priest. So everybody knows Samuel. And yet if you read the story, it seems like Saul did not even know who this prophet is. This tells me something that's obvious. This guy is not interested in anything political or spiritual. But you see, the position of the king is all about politics and spirituality. This is another red flag. In fact, when the servant told him that they may be a prophet that can help them find the lost donkeys, Saul's unkingly predisposition about God is revealed in his response. In verse 7, it says, Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks are gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. It may be obvious, but the way Saul views this whole business of prophecy and prophesying, his whole understanding of God and his prophet is similar to the nation's understanding of sorcery. Yes, you heard it right. This is nothing to Saul but sorcery. 
His understanding is that profit is for hire, just like Balaam. There's always a price for everything, which also implies that God is also for hire. Just give him the right price, he's for hire. Just get in your pocket, put in the offering box, and then you can ask for anything. Rob three times and ask three wishes. This is the understanding of Saul. See, prophets throughout the Old Testament never asked for payment. Only people who asked for payment goes back to the way, all the way back to Balaam the sorcerer. And this is the assumption that we can guarantee the blessings of God through a business transaction is definitely wrong. We can never guarantee any blessing of God. In fact, this is exactly what Saul did right before he died. He employed a sorcerer to bring the spirit of Samuel. This is wrong. Listen, when the world wants to know their future, they go and pay people who read palms and crystal balls and tarot cards. When people want to bless their business, they pay the shamans who do elaborate ceremonies in order to ensure the blessings of God. When Chinese people open business in Chinatown, they hire people to do dragon dance. Have you ever seen that one? They are dragon dance that are looking for the dragon ball. And what's this for? In Chinese philosophy, this is to attract good luck. Nothing more but a good luck. See, in our faith, there's no ceremony or ritual that will guarantee good luck. There's no ritual or ceremony that will guarantee the blessings of God. See, the Lord's Prayer is not a formula. The Lord's Prayer is a pattern. There's no magic in speaking in tongues. There's no magic in raising your hands. There's no magic in prayers. God is not subject to magic. There is no formula in prayer that will guarantee a yes from God. God is sovereign, God is good, and God is wise. And therefore, He answers our prayers when He wants to and how He wants to without the need to explain Himself. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. The Hebrew word for king is melech. The people are asking for a melech. But God is giving them a prince, nagid. That's two different things. Because when God gave into the request of the Israelites to have a prince over them, God did not step outside his throne. He was still sitting on his throne. He did not vacate his throne. He did not resign from being king. And so God gave Israel a prince over his people. And he says, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now, if we pay careful attention to the words, we might be able to hear echoes from a distant past. You might be able to hear Jacob crawling out from the grave saying, not soul, not soul, he's not qualified. Would the patriarch disagree to the kingship of Saul? You see, this is what happens. When Jacob was about to die, see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, when Jacob was about to die, he called all his children and gave them all the blessings. Twelve children, all blessings to twelve children. But notice in particular that he prophesied for two of his other sons, Judah and Benjamin. 
This is what he said to Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest. Genesis chapter 49, verse 27. He said, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. Period. That's it. You see, chapter 49 is a long chapter, but that's the shortest prophecy he gave to Benjamin. It's just like a wolf. But to Judah, he said, verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son. You have gone up. What does it mean, you have gone up? What is Jacob saying? See, Judah is the fourth son. Reuben was the firstborn. And in the culture of the Hebrews, the firstborn always takes the bigger inheritance. The firstborn becomes the chieftain when the father dies. So naturally, Reuben should be. But, you know, Reuben did a very, very wrong thing. He slept with his father's concubine. And so he was disqualified from the inheritance. You see, this, this family is messed up. If your family is messed up, this is messed up. The second and third sons is Simeon and Levi. There was an instance, again, in the history of Israel, that the whole tribe was murdered and tricked by Simeon and Levi in cold blood. The whole tribe. So they too were disqualified. Now, it's Judah's turn. This is the reason why Jacob said, you have gone up. You are next in line of succession. You will receive the inheritance. That's why he added in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff but from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. See, the scepter is the symbol of authority. And this authority to lead the twelve tribes is not prophesied to Benjamin, but prophesied to Judah. And guess what? Saul is not from the tribe of Judah. He's a Benjaminite. See, if you base kingship on tribes, he's disqualified for the job. That means if Job, Jacob can crawl out of the grave, he would object. He would say, no, 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 this is the wrong thing. My prophecy for the next king, for the next leader of the tribes, is from Judah, not from Benjamin. To Jacob, Saul was nothing but a ravenous wolf. In fact, when you read the whole book of Samuel, you will find that the rule of Saul, his whole entire kingship, was characterized by chaos, like a wolf. But notice how Samuel described him in verse 20. It says, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? In other words, Saul is the exact reflection of the people's heart. He perfectly fits what he wants, what they want. But Saul is never the choice of God in the first place. You see, in 1998, the Filipino actor turned president, Joseph Estrada, did an inaugural speech. And in his speech, he said, Vox populi, vox deo. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Three years later, in 2001, he was thrown out of office for corruption. Now, I could be wrong on this, but I think the voice of the people is not the voice of God. And in the case of Saul, he is the perfect candidate to teach the people the consequences of asking God the wrong thing. Now, there's another thing that God told Samuel. 
And I think this is crucial in our understanding of what's happening here. You'll find that in verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Now, it may be different from your Bible because if your Bible is NIV or some other translations, it would say, rule my people. But in ESV, it says, restrain my people. In Hebrew, it's technically restrain my people. Now, remember the premise in the book of Judges before the book of Judges ends. It says that there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What this means is that now Saul, who will become king, will restrain, hold back, control the people from doing what was right in their own eyes. The kingship of Saul will hold back, control, restrict, restrain the downward spiral to chaos. We said that desiring a king is like Eve desiring for an apple. Now, God told them, Adam and Eve, that if they eat the apple, they will die. There's a consequence. God also told the Israelites that if they desire a king, they will become slaves. Consequence. And yet, Israel still insisted for a king. So when God found out that the couple, Adam and Eve, ate of the fruit, he confronted them. So the woman pointed to the man. The man pointed to the woman. The woman pointed to the serpent. Sorry again. Do it again. The man pointed to the woman. The woman pointed to the serpent. The serpent has no hands. He cannot point to anything. (laughs) Unfortunately, even though they knew it was forbidden, it was the woman. Let me be very clear about this one. And I'm not trying to be be discriminative. It is the woman who spoke to the serpent. It was the woman who entertained the thought. It was the woman who failed to discern the lies of the serpent. It was the woman who literally took the fruit from the tree and gave it to the husband. The man was totally passive in the story, but he was guilty nevertheless. This is what God said in verse 16 in Genesis chapter 3. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. This is one of the consequences of failing of eating the fruit. And this is what God said, which is very, very interesting. He said, your desire shall be contrary to your husband." Now, think about it. Why do we fight, husband and wives? Because we have different opinions. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, I'm not making this up. I'm not trying to put you down, women. The Bible said the man will rule over you. This is in the context of marriage, not in every man or woman. This is marriage. Let me explain this further. The phrase rule over in Hebrew is mashal. There's one word, mashal. And let's assume that we don't know what this means. But there's another story right after this story that tells us and use the word again, mashal, rule over. So they had kids, Cain and Abel. Abel and Cain one day went to sacrifice to to God. Cain brought vegetables. Abel brought the first of his flock. And the Bible said God did not accept Cain's sacrifice. So he was furious. He was angry. And this is what God said in verse 6 and 7, same chapter. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Now watch this. 
Its desire, just like what he told Eve, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. What does it mean now? What God is saying is that evil is trying to rule Cain, but he must control, rule over the desire to sin. He must restrain himself. He must rule over his emotions. He must control his anger. So if you bring this definition over to the rule over to what God told Eve, what he meant was that from now on, because you failed to detect and discern the lies, man, your husband will rule over you so that you will be restrained from another failure. There's no reaction. I know this is hard to accept, but I want to show you side by side Genesis chapter 3.16 and Genesis 4.7. It says 3.16, your desire should be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In chapter 4, verse 7, it says, Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. See, this is the exact same thing that God is saying about rule, mashal. Now, every time Paul or Peter in the New Testament would talk about marriage, they would always refer back to Genesis chapter 3. Husband must and wife must love each other, but wife must submit to the husband. You will never find a verse in the Bible that husbands must submit to the wife in the context of marriage. Because this goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Wife submit to the husband, and husband should rule over, but with love. Say amen to that, with love. You see, after the fall, this became God's design for marriage. So husbands, when you and your wife walk in the mall, let her look at the bags and jewelries, but hold her hands. You will save a lot of money by doing this. So when you hear God telling Samuel that Saul as king will restrain, will hold back, will control the people, it is meant to restrict them from spiraling down to more chaos and idolatry. Fast forward to chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince, Nagid, not Melech, prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be Nagid, prince, over his heritage. This is shocking news, even to Saul. See, he started just by looking for the lost donkeys. Now he's going to be king. So this is shocking to him. So it's necessary for Samuel to give him signs. What are the signs to confirm that he is really king? Now, there are three signs given to Saul. First, he goes home, he reaches a certain place, and Samuel said, you will reach that certain place and you will be met by two men. And those two men will say, donkeys were found. Problem solved. Second time, you will reach another destination and you will be met by three men carrying goats, bread, and wine, which is good. The third sign is that when you reach another destination, you will meet a group of prophets, the Spirit will fill you, and you will prophesy. Now, prophesy here does not mean he will start predicting crazy, crazy things in the future. Prophesy here means he will, just like in other parts of the scriptures, he will preach. So, so Paul, even though he, Saul, he doesn't have 
the capacity to preach and the training to do it, he will be, because of the Holy Spirit, be able to prophesy or preach. Now, let me tell you why these signs are important. The first sign was about donkeys. Donkeys were, were found. The second sign was about the bread and the wine. The third was about prophesying. Now, let me tie this up for you. When you read the accounts of Jesus leading to his final week, you will encounter a very interesting phenomenon. So the question now is, between Saul and the New Testament Jesus Christ, if Saul is not qualified to be king, then who is? If Samuel chapter 9 was about confirming the identity of the king, Matthew 21 was about confirming the identity of the true king and the long-awaited king of Israel. So again, first sign. The first sign for Saul was about calling, of his calling, was about two men will bring the news that the donkeys were found. What's interesting is that when you go to Matthew 21, in the final week of Jesus, he instructed two of his disciples, the same two guys that said the donkeys are found, two of his disciples will find in the city donkeys that are tied to a post. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. This is the, the donkeys that Jesus will ride into Jerusalem. But, you know, Jesus has been to Jerusalem countless times. Why would he need to ride a donkey at this point? And then you will read in Matthew 21, Matthew was quoting Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9 is a prophecy concerning the coming king riding on a donkey. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. The question here is, if Saul is not qualified to be king, then who is? The second sign for Saul was that he will be given bread and wine. Now, the next significant event after riding donkey to Jerusalem was that Jesus gave another instruction to his disciples to find a lodging in the city inside Jerusalem where they will have their last meal, the Passover. And guess what's on the menu? Bread and wine. Is it a coincidence? I don't think so. See, the question here is, if Saul is not qualified to be king, then who is? The third sign for Paul, for Saul, rather, is that he will prophesy. Now, back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus was with the disciples for three years now. He was about to reach the final end, the final week. And he was trying to ask the disciples about who they think he was. So he asked his disciples, who do you think I am? One of these disciples said, people think that you are Elijah. Some others think that you are John the Baptist. And other things that you are another prophet. And so Jesus turned to Peter and he said, what do you think? Who do you say I am? And Peter said in Matthew 16, verse 6, he said, Simon, Peter replied, you are the Christ. Christ is Greek. The Hebrew word is melek. The English word is king. What Peter is saying is that you are the king, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What does this mean? See, for three years, Jesus has been healing, casting out demons, forgiving people, multiplying bread, all the good things but never come to mind that Jesus is really the divine son of king, or the king was divine. So Jesus is trying to confirm 
who do you think I am? What this means is that when Jesus said that his confession was a revelation from the Father, what he meant is that Peter prophesied a revelation. Peter said something that he cannot come up just by himself. It was revealed to him by the Father. There was a revelation. He prophesied Jesus is King, the Son of God. What exactly did Peter say? Jesus is the King, the Son of God. See, if this, is, if this idea of king goes all the way back to Saul, then for all intents and purposes, there is nothing more but a rejection of Yahweh's king. When they asked Saul for a king, Israel rejected Yahweh's king. That means Jesus also, if he is king, he will also be rejected as king. But are they waiting for a human king? So the question again is this, is Jesus... God in human form, or he is just another human king. See, the people of Israel in the time of Samuel rejected God as king. They want a human king. So in the time of Jesus, we must be able to determine if he is God the king, or he is just another human king. Now watch closely, because this is the exact same thing that the high priest will ask Jesus on his trial. Matthew 26, verse 63. Remember, Peter confessed, you are the king, the son of the living God. But what did he mean by that? The high priest in verse 63 said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the king, the Melech, the son of God. Now, what does this mean? What this means is that from the time that Peter confessed, revealed, prophesied that Jesus is king, the news spread like wildfire. This Jesus is claiming that he is the son of God, the king. But what does it mean? By implication, the high priest was trying to confirm the rumors about Jesus. He wanted to make sure if Jesus is just another king or if he is more than that. So when he asked Jesus, he's trying to ask, are you the original king, God, Yahweh, or are you just another king? See, the high priest is not interested in Roman politics. He was interested in something else. And his main concern is if Jesus is claiming to be the divine king of Israel. That's why when Jesus said yes, he said blasphemy. Now, just as Israel, in the time of Samuel, rejected Yahweh's king, they will also reject Jesus as king. And the reason for that was obvious. Israel wants to be like king, like all the nations. See, Caesar was that kind of king that Israel wants to be like all the nations. Caesar was the divine son of God. Did you know that? That in Roman mints, in their coins, there's an inscription that says that Caesar is the divine son of God. Just like the same title that Jesus is claiming for himself. What this means is that, if you think about it, the high priest is in fact claiming that Caesar was their king. They don't need another Jesus king. They already have Caesar king. So if you think about it, what this means is that the series of events leading to the climax of the gospel are all pointing towards the revelation of the true identity of Jesus Christ. So the question is, is he the divine king or is he not? Now at this point, Jesus responded to the high priest. 
And if there's one definitive statement that Jesus claimed to be divine, it is this. Some people would say, Jesus never claimed to be divine. That's not true. I want to show you this one. Matthew 26, verse 64. The high priest was asking, are you the divine king? Are you Yahweh the king? Are you the son of God? That's what he's asking. And Jesus said, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Now listen closely because what Jesus did right there was he prophesied. Now, he quoted from two passages in the Old Testament. One in Psalm 110 verse 1 and second in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. In Psalm 110 verse 1, he quoted, The Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. In Daniel 7 13, he quoted, Coming on the clouds of heavens. And they put them together. And what he says is that this is fulfilled. I am now the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. That was Jesus saying so that the high priest said, blasphemy. Did Jesus claim to be divine? Of course. He's the divine son of God. He's king. And at this point, he prophesied. He told the very person who would recognize the voice of God, I am the son of God. I am king. And I am back. I think that God has given us breadcrumbs in the story. I think God has given us clues in the story of Saul to help us see that the true king of Israel has always been Yahweh. God has never stepped out of the throne. God has never resigned from the throne. God has never vacated the throne. He's always been sitting on the throne. There will never be a human king fit for the job. Not Saul, not David, not even Solomon. No human king, no human president will ever fit the job. You see, there will be a no human king fit for the job because the only king who can save the people from the hands of the true enemy is the king who is able to save us from sin. That's why his name is Jesus. Jesus means Yahweh is salvation. That's exactly what the angel told Mary and Joseph. You will name him Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. There's only one king who can fight our battles. And that's the king who has stared death in the face and said, wait until Sunday and I'll come back. See, there's only one king who can administer true justice and righteousness. It will be the king who, despite of his innocence, has experienced all injustice, all betrayal, and all condemnation. But the king the world wanted and asked for is a king like Saul, tall, rich, and handsome. But the king that the world rejected was exactly the opposite. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 and 3. He said, he had no form or majesty. He, he doesn't look like a king. He doesn't look like a royalty. He doesn't look rich. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He's not handsome. He's not tall. In verse 3, he said he was despised and rejected by men. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So picture Jesus on the cross, 
picture Jesus on the cross and people are shouting and people are saying, away with you, away with you. You're a sinner, away with you. So the question here is, if Saul is not qualified for king, then who is? Beloved, either Jesus is the true divine king or he is not. And if Jesus is the true divine king, then we have two choices. Either we bend the knee to the right divine king or we look for another king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the revelation that you are here. Thank you for the grace and mercy. Thank you for the patience that you have endured so much suffering. Father, we look for things that please our eyes, just like the fruit from the tree, tall, rich, and handsome. The people has looked for a Messiah that will fit our category of what's good for us. But then you gave Jesus. Father, I pray that you will open our eyes. I pray that you will confirm with our spirit who Jesus really is, not just as having the title of true divine king, but really the king in our lives. Father, help us to honor him as our true and divine king. In Jesus' name we pray.